0: From the Jeff Nyquist Studios on California's North Coast and our flagship broadcast facilities at WIBG 1020, you're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Now with today's program, here's Jeff.
1: Hi, I'm Jeff Nyquist, and welcome to another edition of the Jeff Nyquist Program. Today we're going to be talking about Africa, and we're going to have as our special guest uh, Eben Barlow. He's a former member of the South African Defense Force, a man who uh, has worked in counterinsurgency for many years, and he's got some interesting information, surprising insights into the situation in Africa. Uh, We'll be back with our guest after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist
2: Radio Show. WIBG 1020. Live local radio for Atlantic City, Cape May, and all of South Jersey. All right, one time kick, they blew it, but the Vikings right there to
1: field it. I think it takes guts to come out like you are doing right now. And if all of us will listen to this station more, I'm just so keyed up about it. We talked about it by the hour.
2: We are going to pursue this until we're satisfied. WIBG 1020 on your radio, online, or on your cellular. WIBG 1020. We're everywhere.
0: You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show.
1: With me is my guest, Lieutenant Colonel Eben Barlow. Am I saying your first name right?
3: That is correct, yes. It's Eben.
1: Lieutenant Colonel Eben Barlow is a former member of the South African Defense Force commanded its elite Special Forces 32 Battalion Reconnaissance Wing. He founded the private military contractor Executive Outcomes in 1989 and was involved in counterinsurgency operations in Africa and in Asia uh, since that time. He has written an autobiography that came out last year, Executive Outcomes Against All Odds. Welcome to the program, Lieutenant Colonel Barlow.
3: Thank you very much, Jeff. My pleasure to be talking to you.
1: Your background is fascinating and, of course, Africa's in the news more and more. We, we in America hear about the conflicts there, the insurgencies. Uh, perhaps you could tell us how you got into this business and, and something about your background.
3: Well, first of all, I started off, as so many young South Africans did, um, doing a compulsory military service um, shortly after I, I finished my schooling. And um, that was then in the South African um, Corps of Engineers. Um, At that time, I served with two um, infantry battalions in what was then called our operational area, which was on the border with Angola um, in southwest Africa. And then I got recruited into um, a clandestine infantry battalion known as 32 Battalion, and ultimately I I ended up as the second in command of the reconnaissance wing. And then I did a lot of extensive work um, in Angola. When I... Finished my tour up there, I was transferred back to um, military intelligence. I had one or two stops on the way to military intelligence um, and ended up in a small little directorate which was called the Directorate of Covert Collection. Um, And our task was to country by country target specific um, intelligence requirements as they were at that stage required by the armed forces and obviously the government. Shortly after that, I was then transferred to um, an ultra secret division of the South African Special Forces, which was known as the Civil Cooperation Bureau, or CCB, in which I became the region commander of what was then called Region 5, and my stamping ground was then um, Europe, which included the United Kingdom, as well as the Middle East. In 1989, however, It appeared that the writing was on the wall for all of us who were serving in what was then regarded as special units, and I established the company Executive Outcomes to try and um, bring some military know-how and intelligence know-how into the business community. At that stage, I was um, setting up a covert diamond um, team for the De Beers Mining House um, to counter illicit diamond and trafficking and, and obviously the selling thereof. And I also got a contract to train the South African Special Forces in intelligence gathering and covert operations. And and covert operations, as you probably know, is a very wide field of operations. But um, in 1993, I was approached by an oil company to try and help them recover oil equipment um, off a harbour in northern Angola. And that little harbour was in a small town called Soyu. And um, I sent off some men um, to Sawyer because we thought it was going to be really just a very straightforward um, security task. But the media got wind of it and turned it out into something which it wasn't, claiming that we were going to assassinate um, Dr. Jonas Savimbi, the leader of UNITA at that time. And obviously that um, put us all into grave danger. Um, but having said that, we ended up training the Angolan Armed Forces, we worked in Sierra Leone as a company, we worked in Uganda, I gave advice to several other African governments, so all in all we were quite busy um, within Africa mainly.
1: Hmm. That's fascinating, so in some cir- circumstances you would be fighting against communist insurgents, in other situations you'd be fighting you'd be training uh, communist forces putting down insurgencies in their own countries.
3: I suppose one could look at it like that, but I do think that Africa is is a very complex continent, and, you know, what what we commonly refer to as communism um, is not regarded by by many tribal leaders as being communist. It's the way in which, traditionally, they have just lived. Um, At the time, however, that we went to Angola, the... South African situation had changed drastically as well with um, a new government on its way in. So ultimately we were first of all trying to make ends meet and secondly we realized the importance of stopping um, the conflicts that were raging in Africa because ultimately we live here and we have to almost live with these conflicts and, and the consequences they bring to us.
1: Now we've heard in the United States about blood diamonds And, of course, a lot of these conflicts are fueled by diamonds. Uh, Perhaps you could explain that.
3: Absolutely. Um, You know, any insurgency, whether it's um, considered to be pro-communist or anti-communist, needs funding. Um, Africa is a continent which is, apart from being incredibly diverse, with many different um, tribal divisions and language divisions, it is very, very rich in resources. And one of the great resources that are easily obtainable and easily traded are diamonds. Um, These diamonds are are mined in certain areas by um, what are referred to as illegal miners and they are then sold for a very cheap price on the international market. Those funds in turn are used to purchase um, equipment, weapons, etc. in order to continue fueling the conflicts that are raging. So ultimately, um, you know, the term blood diamond was a, was a, a term that um, was really thought out in a way almost to negate the diamond trade itself and to add a stigma to it. But, you know, that said, um, the fact of the matter is, is that diamonds have played a very large role in in destabilizing complete countries in Africa.
1: And, and there's been news here that al-Qaeda has been involved in the diamond trade in some of these African countries. Have you heard of any of this?
3: Um, Several months ago, um, we started picking up signs. um, And when I say we, I really speak of myself, in a sense, um, because executive outcomes no longer exist. Um, But myself and several friends started picking up that there is an enormous trade in diamonds going on mainly going off to places such as Syria and to Saudi Arabia, um, etc. And these are diamonds that are really just passing through no known or acceptable channels. Obviously, the um, proceeds of those diamonds, what they are being used for, I cannot say, but um, it does appear that there is some form of um, cash passing hands for diamonds and that the cash that is being made on those diamonds is being used for other means.
1: Now, uh, just to get an idea of this diamond trade, if we were to look at the illicit diamond trade, I mean, how much money are we talking about? We're, I mean, you have got to be talking about a lot of money if it's able to fuel uh, insurgencies, fuel, you know, pay for weapons and so on.
3: Well, I think, you know, we have to look at very, very vast sums of money. Um, I cannot um, really put figures to it, um, which I can confirm, but I can tell you that um, in a little northern Angolan town, called Kafumfu, which was really the hub of the diamond trade, um, illegal diamond trade in Angola in the 1995-96 period, Um, a kilogram of sugar was selling for $500. Um, Now, you know, to to pay that sort of money, you need money. Um, And obviously, people were doing very good business in sugar. So it does give one an idea that we are talking of vast, vast sums of money.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. And that Angolan War, now, that started in the 1970s. And, of course, the government had its, it was headed by the MPLA, uh, and they were fighting against uh, Jonas Savimbi, uh, the leader of UNITA. And uh, it raged. Now, D- Dr. Jonas Savimbi was assassinated a few years ago, and the conflict was brought to an end. Uh, what can you tell us about that and, and your role in that?
3: First of all, the war in Angola started um, long before the mid-1975s. It was in the 1975-76 period that the South African Defence Force entered the war in Angola, um, initially supporting the FNLA, as did the Americans. Um, at that stage, the American government quickly switched its allegiance to UNITA, which was then under control of Jonas Savimbi, and South Africa followed suit. Um however, Savindi himself um was not what people considered really to be this great democrat. He was he was trained in Peking, he was a, a dedicated Maoist. Um and for many of us it was just strange that we were actually fighting on the side of Maoism, if if you know, if you understand what I'm saying.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um because he wasn't what he was put out to be. Um that said, he did become a force to be reckoned with in Angola and was probably the greatest stumbling block there was in achieving peace in Angola. The time of his assassination, um, there were many rumours doing the round that there were certain foreign forces involved, that it was the Angolans themselves, that there were South Africans even involved. Um, you know, Ultimately, I, I don't know what is fact and what is rumour as far as Savimbi is concerned.
1: Hmm, that's interesting now there was uh, there was some information on the internet that uh, that your uh, executive outcomes uh, people had something to do with taking uh, the diamond mines that were fueling um, Zvimbi's uh, war machine.
3: Well, part of the strategy that we presented to the Angolan High Command was that the the quickest way to stop the war was to deny um, the insurgents their financial means. And that would entail recapturing the diamond mines and putting them back under government control. Um, And within a period of 12 months, um, at that time, you need to admitted that they had actually lost the war on the battlefield and they could no longer sustain their war effort. So, you know, to to stop um, an insurgency in Africa is not that difficult. One does, however, have to find the funding and actually deny them the funding.
1: Is it true that uh, Jonas Savimbi's forces in Angola uh, committed a lot of atrocities? Did you uh, run across information on that?
3: Um, Unfortunately, we did. But there I I also have to say that it was not only Savimbi's forces that committed atrocities. I think they were committed by the Angolan armed forces themselves at times. Um, I do recall um, one of the um, brigades of the Angolan army which was called the 16th Brigade during an advance um, my men actually spoke to the commander of the brigade and asked him to stop the scorched earth policy that was taking place Um, and that policy was really um, destroying villages and actually burning them to the ground Um, so you know that type of thing unfortunately was happening Um, we did come across civilians who had been massacred by um, Unita's forces because they weren't prepared to get themselves involved in the fight, and some of those atrocities were pr- pretty horrific.
1: With me on the program is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Eben Barlow. He's a former member of the South African Defense Force who commanded its elite Special Forces 32 Battalion Reconnaissance Wing. He founded the private military contractor Executive Outcomes in 1989 has been involved in counterinsurgency in Africa and Asia, and we'll be back with our guest after these messages. You're listening to
0: the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist
2: at 10.20 a.m. or WIBG.com. We're the area's first choice for Christian news talk and a whole lot more. WIBG 1020 on your radio, online, or on your cellular. WIBG 1020. We're everywhere.
0: You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show.
1: We're on the line with Eben Barlow in Africa, in South Africa, and we're discussing the situation in that continent. We've heard a lot about the genocide in Rwanda in the 1990s and about the responsibility of Western governments that knew there was a problem, they didn't intervene uh, until it was too late. Um, you were you had your finger on this pulse before it happened, didn't you?
3: Yes, we, we were aware of, of um, certain people from South Africa selling weapons into that area, and in fact we... We did try to warn people that there was a problem developing. Um, No one was prepared to listen to us. And when the genocide really started, we were approached by the United Nations to submit a proposal um, to try and restore order in Rwanda, but our proposal was rejected as the UN felt it was too costly.
1: Huh. Interesting. Um, you said something that that fascinates me. And you you've worked in military intelligence, and um, the military intelligence business is, and trying to tell people the truth is complicated by the fact that people there are certain things people don't want to hear. Isn't that true?
3: I think there are certain things that many people don't want to hear, and I I think part of of any intelligence service um, is really in a way to not only try and provide. The government they serve with intelligence as opposed to rumours, but also to put out certain um, so-called intelligence facts to um, supporters within the media or to journalists outside of a country so that those stories can be published in order to make governments look good. So I think you really have a two-edged sword um, in that you, on the one hand, disinformation is being fed out. And on the other hand, intelligence is being given to a government to take decisions on. I think however the danger as happened in South Africa was where uh, disinformation was starting to be fed into the government um, channels as well. And I think it caught a lot of people very unprepared.
1: Mm -hmm. And then of course we look at the map and we see Africa is made up of nation states. But in reality, it's it's very tribal, isn't it? I mean, you mentioned this before, that, that tribe really uh, trumps even ideology.
3: I think so, yes. I think, you know, many people um, in, within Africa, many people will, will speak about the, the disaster of colonization. However, colonization brought about many, many good things to Africa. But I think one of the disadvantages of it was that borders were just drawn... Um, for the powers at that stage that were occupying certain areas of Africa. And in drawing those borders, a lot of tribal elements were really cut in two. And obviously you still have a very strong um, cross-border influence between tribes because tribalism is very important. Um, and I think that gives rise to a lot of problems in Africa.
1: And let's just say for a minute we were to redraw the borders of Africa to accommodate the tribes. How many countries would there then be in Africa if it was just Oh my
3: goodness, Jeff. (laughs) I think there would be I think we would we would probably find we wouldn't have enough countries to draw on the map because there are a large amount of tribes. But obviously some tribes are stronger than others and and the stronger tribes are the tribes that ultimately take control and install themselves in government. Um, I do think, however, that many of the problems that we face in Africa are related to tribalism per se, um, especially if we look at what has happened in, in Kenya um, after the recent elections of um, Kabaki. And, and Kenya was um, upheld by everyone to be the model of African democracy.
1: Hmm. And yeah, now look at it, uh, they're sleeping outside their houses with their machetes ready.
3: Yes, because obviously there's, there's a great amount of concern as to what's going to happen during the night. Um, you know is someone going to come and attack them and and unfortunately, this becomes a very vicious circle um, because once the bloodletting starts, it is very, very difficult to stop it, as we saw in Rwanda, we saw it in Burundi, we see it in the DRC, we see it in Sudan, we see it in Somalia, so it, it becomes a major problem
1: yeah, and we think we're in the West, we think in terms of nation states because the nation state has been so successful. That we've taken linguistic, larger linguistic groups, and we've been able to bring the different tribes of the different European countries together under these languages. It evolved over hundreds of years, but in, in Africa, they're just not there. Are there any countries in Africa where there's a strong sense of national identity, where the tribal identity isn't, you know, the number one uh, feeling of identity?
3: Not that I'm aware of, Jeff, and I think that's one of the great tragedies of Africa, um, is that there is still, and are still, these very deep divisions that exist. And, you know, it it is tribal, yes, but there's also a large element of um, the haves and the have-nots that come into play and the language differences. um, And even amongst tribes, tribal customs may differ from area to area. So all of these things impact on what's happening.
1: And of course, if you have a um, have versus have not psychology, um, you have the danger of one tribe being envious of a more successful one, like you had in Rwanda, where they want to then persecute them or even I- eliminate that tribe as a as a kind of um, a revenge.
3: Absolutely, and that becomes part of the danger. And as we we have moved into the year of 2008, many of those dangers actually seem to be increasing and not decreasing at all.
1: And, of course, uh, what's interesting, there's another dimension, the elite in Africa, the educated people in the black African countries. uh, A lot of them are socialists. I mean, maybe all of them are socialists. I mean, you mentioned uh, Dr. Jonas Savimbi. I mean, yes, he started out as a Maoist and ended up being supported by Ronald Reagan, of all people. Um, it's the, the appeal of socialism, is it because the, the tribalism uh, comes with a kind of socialist feeling, a feeling of, you know, I mean, the family is a socialist unit. If Karl Marx said uh, that socialism was uh, each according to his ability, each according to his need, that describes the family and the tribe is an extended family. So it would make sense that socialism would be sort of the ideology of choice in, in Africa. Is this the case?
3: I think that's a very fair assumption. When we look at different political ideologies, we actually speak of African socialism, which really traces its roots back to the foundations which you have just discussed. Um, Within that socialism, obviously you will now find that um, certain educated people will strive for the wealth um, and they will work to achieve that. But with that comes the envy from those who haven't wanted to really work hard to get there. And that's when a lot of the barriers are broken down because in the socialist system, which has a, at times a very strong leaning towards capitalism, obviously the envy from those who aren't part of it starts developing and that does create massive problems.
1: Mm-hmm. One of the important defectors from the Soviet Union back in uh, the 1970s or maybe it was the early 80s was a fellow who had, um, had worked in Africa and describe the early efforts of the Soviet Union to penetrate Africa and how baffled they were that they couldn't get the Africans really to take the Soviet form of communism seriously, that they had to, you know, almost go with the National Liberation Front and communism as a sort of uh, African uh, thing. How did the Soviet Union ideology work out in Angola, now in the Congo? Where you have um, self-declared Marxist-Leninist leaders. I mean, even in Zimbabwe, although he's a again a Maoist, right? Uh, uh, the regime in Zimbabwe gets its uh, ideology from the Chinese side of Marxism-Leninism. I mean, how how does the leadership, uh, you know, comprehend this, and and how do the people receive it?
3: You know, your question is actually very difficult to answer. Whereas many of the leaders will. Um, openly state that they support Marxism or Leninism um, they do however really use the terms in name only but behind the scenes they really do revert back and, and this is my experience mm-hmm. to a form of African socialism with some capitalist leanings in it. It becomes very hard for someone such as I who's worked in many of these areas to define it down to a specific known political ideology because it is a mix-mash of of many different ideologies. If we look at the way that the the Russians at that stage came into Africa, ultimately their their greatest contribution to any government was the supply of weapons, Mm -hmm. and not really so much in terms of the ideology, because the ideologies never really took hold as they expected the ideologies to take hold in that continent.
1: And for the black-white differences, which is a a larger difference, I mean, how did the black governments hiring you, I mean, did they trust you? How far did they trust you? Uh, Because obviously there's ill feeling between black and white in Africa.
3: That in itself was very interesting for us because remember that um, I, as a soldier, fought the Angolan government as a government. Um, When I was contracted to provide training for the armed forces, I met with several of the generals and as it is with military men, we go back and we we discussed certain operations which took place in Angola and this did lead to some building up of trust between us. When my first men arrived in Angola, there was a large element of distrust toward them simply because we were seen as the enemy.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: We'd fought them for many, many years, but in the same breath, I have to say that the men of the company who went to Angola weren't all white. Many of them were black. In fact, the ratio was about 80% black and 20% white in the company.
4: Mm -hmm. So
3: eventually they started trusting us, especially when they realized that the strategies we were developing and the, the training we were giving to the army in terms of their basic foundation training and then obviously developing the tactics to implement the strategy we started developing a large amount of trust with him but that trust was really um, related to specific areas such as the military um, achieving certain military goals but we were never let into the inner sanctums of the politicians at all the, the soldiers trusted us their soldiers eventually trusted us but initially there was a, a large amount of
1: large distrust, amount of distrust. Um, I, I was just curious. The Cubans, of course, had a role in Angola when the South Africans uh, and the Americans were supporting UNITA and Savimbi. And uh, what was your sense? I've read some of the history of the campaigns in Angola, and my sense was that the Angolan troops received very poor training, performed very poorly, and that the Cubans must not have made a very good contribution to, to the Angolan army.
3: Well, I was asked that question probably about a month ago. Um, What was the difference between the Cuban approach and our approach? I think, first of all, we have to look at the Angolan army as it existed at that time. And it was very much an army built through circumstance of war. So many soldiers who ended up in that army didn't want to be there in the first instance. Mm -hmm. Um, Secondly, there was a, a huge rush to get men to the front, to do the fighting, so the training was poor. But having said that, one of the greatest problems they faced was with the Soviet influence that was then already exerted on the Angolan army, was the um, method of communication, that commanders were not allowed to take decisions. It always had to be referred back to higher authority. That obviously caused a huge time lapse for any responses that the Angolan army or even the Cubans for that matter could implement but I think it finally reached a stalemate at a place called Cuita Carnival where the Cuban advance on a town where Savimbi was called Mavinga or a, or a UNITA controlled town called Mavinga um, the advance was halted at a town called Cuita Carnival But that ultimately led to a stalemate and finally um, became the reason for the implementation of the resolution to remove South Africa out of Angola.
1: Hmm. And uh, how violent was the fighting in some of these battles? I mean, how how many casualties were taken on each side?
3: Jeff, at that stage, I was no longer um, a part of the war on the front. Um, I do understand that there were very heavy casualties from the Angolan and from the Cuban side and the South African casualties were relatively low. However, if one turns it around, um, from the Angolan and the Cuban side, they suffered virtually no casualties and we suffered horrific casualties. Sadly, the the full extent of the casualties in, in those last battles is really not known, but what I do know is that there was um, a very major drive by the combined Cuban-Angolan army down toward Mavinga, and they were stopped at this town called Quito-Carnival, which was really besieged. And to people I've spoken to from both sides, both sides being the old South African army and Angolans who were in Quito-Carnival at that stage, um, have said to me that the Angolan casualties were much, much higher than what the South African casualties were.
1: Hmm. With me on the program is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Eben Barlow. He's a former member of the South African Defense Force who commanded its elite Special Forces 32 Battalion Reconnaissance Wing. He founded the Private Military Contractor Executive Outcomes in 1989, has been involved in counterinsurgency in Africa and Asia, and will be back with our guest after these messages.
0: You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist
2: on air or online, we're Life Radio 1020 WIBG. Christian news talk with purpose and passion from early in the morning.
1: Now in life, you're allowed to support whoever you want, but in partisan politics, there are rules. Two Grossman Afternoons. Someone suspects an illegal immigrant, the cop is more afraid of arresting them than At- of letting them go.
2: Chuck Betson Sports Saturdays. That's yeah, you're that. battling it. Yeah, yeah, not, I like that. that. We're not going to ignore it. And Dan Klein, South Jersey Insider. I think that's more than reasonable? I certainly, you know, we're talking about million here. I don't think any reasonable person would blame you one bit. WIBG 1020, the area's first choice, plugging you into life.
1: This is Jeff Nyquist. Uh, We've got on the program with us Lieutenant Colonel Eben Barlow, a former member of the South African Defense Forces and uh, founder of the private military contractor Executive Outcomes. And we were talking about the Angola War and the different wars. Um, And let's talk about South Africa itself because of the changes there. In the United States, we don't hear much. I mean, we've heard about how the African National Congress took power there and how supposedly the evils of apartheid were swept away. But I I have noticed that the Chinese and the Russians have had increasing involvement with the South African military. We read about some joint military exercises or whatnot. Um, Has the South African military gone into a serious decline now?
3: Jeff, obviously, um, I look at it very subjectively because I was um, released from the military under very unpleasant circumstances.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: (laughs) So I still look back at what was then the old South African Defence Force and I compare it to what we see now. And I believe everyone will agree with me that there has been a very serious decline in it. Um, I think, however, the... Chinese involvement in Africa has followed a a very different um, approach to what the old Russian approach was. And the Chinese approach is really at, at forging ties and gaining access to resources and in the process almost propping up governments financially in order to secure those resources.
1: And of course we know about Sudan. What other countries is China involved in heavily now?
3: Well, there are are very few countries that there is no um, presence of the Chinese. Um, But, you know, one one has to bear in mind that many African governments find themselves financially in very difficult positions. Um, They find that their countries have been very severely damaged by the um, insurgencies that have taken place. And the Chinese arrive with unlimited bank accounts. And really... Most of the governments um, in Central Africa are only too willing to accept funds in exchange for resources.
1: So the Chinese influence is sort of replacing European influence in Africa?
3: Very much so. We just have to look at some of the projects the Chinese are doing and they are major projects that they're doing all over Africa. Many governments are pleased about this because this type of aid was never forthcoming from the European governments or the US government. It was never forthcoming from the Russian government either. The Chinese have come in, undertaken massive projects, pumped a huge amounts of finance into those countries' coffers, and the result has been an upswing in many economies because of the Chinese um, entrance into those countries.
1: So there is a there is a positive side for these countries to become more involved with China.
3: Well, I think it, it's a positive and a negative side. I think positive in the sense that. Um, you know, obviously there are huge developments taking place. The infrastructures are being repaired and, and expanded. On there's financial um, or capital inflow into the countries, and all of those create the impression that business is booming. I think on the downside is is that the Chinese are really after resources, as many resources as they can get. But in that process, many governments are making themselves open to the Chinese and saying, well, come and see what we have. Um, That creates a problem for the West as we know it um, because ultimately everyone is interested in the resources of Africa. It is sadly just an incredibly wealthy continent which has found itself in a position that is not very enviable.
1: You know, I had a journalist friend who was in... Uh, Africa a couple of years ago, and he said the Chinese were building a submarine base in uh, Namibia.
3: That I cannot confirm. Um, I'm unaware of that, but I think building bases anywhere wouldn't surprise me.
1: So that the Chinese also see not only uh, Africa as a resource base, but they would naturally want to build military bases to assure their control of the region.
3: Well, I, I assume also to make sure that those resources are safeguarded um, at all costs. Um, this becomes part of the problem. The window of opportunity in Africa is gradually closing, and it makes it very difficult for any third party to come in and try and establish a foothold.
1: Now, let's let's talk a, a second about the influence of of Islam in Africa. And of course, we've heard about the trouble in Nigeria. We know about Somalia. Um, how uh, serious is the Islamic situation in um, the different African countries?
3: I think that the the problem is at its largest in in what we refer to as East Africa, which is um, the Sudan, Somalia, Uganda, Kenya, um, that area in in particular. And I think it is it is becoming very very powerful, and it's becoming a major threat to not only other religious groups but also to governments themselves because they're finding themselves in a position where this very rapid rise in Islam is creating a very large um, radical community which these governments and and many other religious groups in those areas have become very scared of and I think that in itself creates a a very unstable political situation and obviously a, a very unstable or potentially unstable military situation
1: and of course already you have instability you add the islamic uh, element into the equation and then it it can be uh, even worse we knew that uh, back in the 70s and 80s ethiopia for example had a marxist leninist government and it seemed like the whole country just disintegrated and, Absolutely. and so what filled the vacuum when the, when the communist regime collapsed in ethiopia
3: Well, I think we we, we have to look at the um, very sudden rise of Islam in Africa um, and I'm speaking about radical Islamic movements um, and I think they have got to a point where they almost hold governments hostages um, because if we really look at at, um, Mogadishu as an example, we can see what has really happened there and it's almost as though these countries have imploded um, because of the violence that this has all created. But ultimately, if you go back to it and you look at um, your Sudan and your Somalias, they are very rich in oil resources as well. So, you know, are all these problems that are being created under the guise of um, a religious group purely to secure resources, or are they really to just totally destroy infrastructure and any influence um, the West or any other nation can influence in there?
1: Now, the the question is the relationship between the Chinese and these radical Islamic regimes. I mean, the Chinese are very much involved in Sudan. It seems to me the Chinese have also hooked up with the radical Islamists in Africa. Would that be a fair assessment?
3: Jeff, I wouldn't be able to answer that question fairly, simply because I I don't know.
1: Hmm. Because uh, now the government in uh, Sudan is is a radical Islamic government, is it not?
3: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: But then the radical Islamic groups are not all united, are they?
3: No, there are many, many different factions amongst them, um, each controlled by its own warlord, and it's become very much a mess in that each warlord wants to proclaim himself the ruler forever.
1: And so we see the tribalism of the Islamic world as well, which in the Islamic world they never really developed uh, nation-states either.
3: No, because it was based on, on the nomad tribe.
1: And the spread of Islam in Africa is it according to tribe? I mean, does a tribe tend to go over as a as a group to Islam? Uh, are some tribes predominantly Christian, other Islamic? Is that how it 's working out in Africa?
3: I think what you see in especially central and southern Africa is that the the different peoples um, have very firmly entrenched religious beliefs um, If we look at the the Christian churches um, centuries ago, really brought their faiths into Africa. Many of these faiths were installed and had become part of life and a way of life for many of the tribes. And those people still cling to their religious beliefs and, and try to resist um, the rise of Islam. But it becomes very difficult when you are forced to accept a religion because someone's pointing a gun at your head. And that becomes a... a a great element of, of problem for many of these people, they don't have anything to resist this with.
1: And of course, uh, the poverty in Africa of these uh, of the majority is, is is enormous. I mean, we read about it, we see uh, documentaries, we see the pictures. I mean, uh, the, there's just tremendous poverty in Africa. Um, I mean, how would you describe that poverty?
3: I think the poverty is um, almost unbelievable. You know, one, one sees people who just really, really have nothing and the clothes they're wearing are virtually non-existent as well. And I think we in Africa have, have gone through the whole cycle of, of wars. We've had our famines. We've had our dry spells. But we've also had, um, very powerful people plundering the coffers of the state, which makes it very difficult, um, for the procurement of food. And, for any aid distribution because ultimately once those coffers are plundered the infrastructure collapses Um, any aid agencies have great difficulty in moving food Um, when they do move them they come under threat by hostile elements Um, and this has a a huge impact on the people who really just have nothing And, and we witnessed that in South Africa with people fleeing across the borders from Zimbabwe and we have people coming in from Mozambique Currently, Mozambique is having huge and devastating floods and, and people are fleeing, but then they flee to South Africa. Those people coming in create an additional strain on the South African economy and obviously can and, and has the potential to increase crime dramatically. So it becomes a very vicious and violent circle. Um, mm. I think, however, that the poverty in Africa is something which is very hard to describe, um, the the ratio between rich and poor is at times enormous in certain countries, and you know as I said earlier that creates a large amount of envy, and that envy leads to additional problems again. So we we find ourselves almost in a, in a catch twenty two situation as far as wealth and poverty, um, the influence of religions, the influence of of different outside countries and, and what they do within Africa, it, it it severely impacts on us in a very negative way.
1: Yeah, and, and of course, uh, you described the government corruption. I've had a friend who mm-hmm. worked for one of the oil companies in Africa and talked about the, the corruption of government officials in, in most of these African countries, and it's unimaginable. I mean, nothing happens unless you pay uh, bribes to government officials.
3: Well, that is the very sad thing, but you know then we we have a look at an organization such as the United Nations um, that was recently exposed in massive frauds themselves. You mm-hmm. know Now, when these people come in and proclaim that they are here to to do positive things in a country, and they are the ones that are involved in the largest scams and in the largest frauds that are happening. It really gives everyone cause to sit down and think about what is really happening and, and who is ultimately benefiting from this. Yes, there are governments that are corrupt. Um, I think just we as as people who live here have come to assume that you know all governments are corrupt, some are just more corrupt than others.
1: And of course, uh, you have the problem of countries literally collapsing societies and economies collapsing. let's let's talk about Zimbabwe, and this has been going on for years. Where the Zimbabwe economy has been in freefall uh, there 's even been parts of the country starving um, what 's going to happen in Zimbabwe I mean is it going to going to finally explode and, and is the government there uh, going to collapse
3: you know jeff the the government of Zimbabwe um, has such a strong hold over the people that those who can leave the country do everything in their power to leave. Um, Those who stay behind really just become the victims of the government. Um, Movements that have tried to organize themselves in Zimbabwe to bring about positive change to the country have found themselves the victims of um, the government within Zimbabwe, and those um, organizations are very quickly put down in in a rather repressive manner. So what we see in Zimbabwe is just ultimate power in the hands of one man, and he is using that power as much as he can possibly use it. But, you know, we have to go back a bit further in history and have a look at the situation as it developed in Zimbabwe and the war that was fought in Zimbabwe and how the change that came about in Zimbabwe was really brought about by the West. Um, you know, and, and this in turn has led many people, black and white, to question the West's intent um in bringing about these um, changes of political systems in Africa. Yes,
1: yeah, so, so Robert Mugabe uh, came to power in Zimbabwe because of a, a negotiated agreement uh, led by the British and Americans. Is that right?
3: Yes, that is correct. Um, and at that stage, he wasn't really the preferred leader that was um, seen by people to be the man to, to be at the helm of Zimbabwe. Um, But it so transpired that he became the president, and he has now become the president for life.
1: And how old is he? He's got to be in his 80s by now.
3: He's an elderly gentleman. Um, He's been very cagey about his age in in various interviews. Um, There are rumors that he has his hair colored in order to hide his age and that type of thing. But he has to be in his 80s. Um, And he's, he's a very elderly man, but he's also um, respected by many other um, black African leaders as a man who has stood up against um, the West in itself. Um, You know, and when you you have people look at um, what's happened in Zimbabwe and the manner in which he is almost held in high esteem, you really just have to ask yourself a few questions as to why is this. If we look at the... um, a meeting which was held recently in Portugal. The British said they were going to boycott it if he came and then the African governments supported him being there. So it really makes one just wonder in terms of what's going to be happening in the future in Africa and how governments are going to conduct themselves and implement their policies.
1: Hmm. Is, is Africa facing a general economic collapse or cave-in or is their relationship with China going to save the continent?
3: I think the relationship with China is going to um improve the Chinese are going to exert their influence um deeper and deeper into africa um and you know at the moment um it is really an open playing field for the Chinese and they are making maximum use of the situation.
1: It's fascinating. I'd never heard anybody uh, say that the Chinese influence in Africa was growing at that uh, at that level and uh and it certainly should make anyone looking at the the, the strategic situation globally that China, being a, a, a rising power, would have this uh, subcontinent or perhaps the whole continent so closely bound up in its economic interests.
3: You know, I, I look at things and I like to think of myself as a realist, and I see the the influence that is coming in, and we see the the growth of those economies where China has really established themselves. And I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm I'm merely an observer as far as that's concerned. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also have a look at um, the deep desire of China to lay its hands on as many resources as it can. Um, And ultimately, what we're seeing in Africa is the selling off of resources of a continent.
1: And is China arming uh, different countries in Africa? I mean, are they selling a lot of arms in Africa?
3: That I cannot um, confirm. There have been stories that they are selling arms, um, but likewise there are stories of European countries selling arms. Um, There are stories that the Chinese are doing it, but there are stories that the British are doing it and that the French are doing it.
1: Interesting. And uh, I can't uh, help uh, asking about this. It's not necessarily something you'd know, uh, but because of your experience in counterinsurgency, uh, what would you say about uh, how America's handled the situation in Iraq? Uh, uh, do you think that that's going to be resolved uh, in favor of of the U.S. side, or do you think this is going to continue to be a festering problem?
3: Jeff, a very difficult question to answer. I think it's easy to answer it simply because I am not there, and I and I don't have to contend with the day-to-day problems that are experienced by commanders on the ground. Um, but going back to the invasion of Iraq, I do recall at the time when the shock and awe strategy was implemented, um, saying to my wife that I am very concerned because it appeared that the principles of war had been ignored, um, ignored in the sense that the rush was on to occupy the capital city of Iraq, and the belief was that once the capital had fallen, everything else would be as it should be and calmness would descend on the country. So that was my outlook on it, really, that I just felt that the principles of warfare had been ignored and that they weren't applied, um, but that the young men and women who were sent there were really sent there believing that the commanders had taken the correct decisions and had found themselves in a, in a very, very difficult position. I think there's no doubt in, in anyone's mind that it's going to still be quite a long campaign.
1: Yes, yes, indeed. In going back to, to South Africa, you know, I don't follow it closely enough, perhaps, but I have the sense that South African economy has contracted since the fall of the apartheid regime and that that the country is not as well off as it was in the past, and there are growing problems there.
3: Sadly, one of the problems is, is having this conversation with you on a telephone line, which is very problematic to put it mildly, um, you know and it's it 's a matter of lack of maintenance on our electricity grids or electricity supply grids, um, our communication systems, and we do have problems with those. Um, there are many other problems as well. if you look at the South African defense industry, which was once a, a very large and booming industry, has almost drowned to a halt. Many people can argue that is because South Africa is no longer in a conflict situation. However, I don't believe that. I think that um, even in times of peace, you prepare for war and any responsible government will continue developing its abilities to defend itself and to present its armed forces with the best weaponry and equipment available. We don't see that anymore. And I think those the collapse of the arms industry has, in a sense, um, led to a shrinking of our economy because it was, at some stage, a very large um, contributor to the economy of the country, not only in terms of finances but also in terms of workforce. We see many companies closing down at the moment, especially the smaller companies, whereas the bigger companies are becoming stronger and stronger, but the, the small traditional companies that employ 10 or 15 people are really having it very hard at the moment.
1: Hmm. So it, it it isn't it isn't just a general economic decline. Although you you describe the infrastructure of the country being in decline, there must be a fall in government revenues in the country as well.
3: Well, we don't feel it in our taxes.
1: <laughs> oh, they've increased the taxes.
3: Yes, um, we have in certain circumstances had to face um, increases in the costs of our electricity, which we. Get um, in terms of our water supplies, um, our toll roads have suddenly become very expensive to travel on, and all those are forms of revenue generation for a government. Um, but ours have gone up pretty steep. I, I think um, you know ultimately that there is in, in certain sectors of the economy very definitely a very large shrinkage taking place. But as I said, in the, in, the, in the bigger companies we find those companies being able to actually grow simply because they have the muscle in which to do it now.
1: Uh, Well, with me has been uh, Lieutenant Colonel Ibn Barlow, uh, formerly with the South African Defense Forces, and uh, he is the founder of Executive Outcomes, a private military contractor, and now he's sort of on his own and he's just written a book called um, Executive Outcomes Against All Odds. Maybe you could tell the audience a bit about your book and how they can order it.
3: Well, the book was published by a South African company which is known as Galago. It is available, um, obviously, within South Africa but internationally off the Galago website, which, may I spell it for you?
1: Oh, yes, go ahead.
3: It is www.galago.co.za. The book is called Executive Outcomes Against All Odds and it was really written in order to try to set aside all the lies and disinformation that were generated about the company and from my perspective as the founder of the company to put our story across and to also explain where we worked, what we did and what we had to contend with.
1: So uh, you've, you've basically had to contend with people saying bad things about you.
3: Yes, very definitely. Um, <laughs> Because many people wanted us stopped. Ultimately, um, we go back to an earlier question of yours in terms of blood diamonds. Diamonds were cheap when they were in the hands of the insurgents or the rebels. But once they were back in government hands, there was very definitely a change in price for diamonds. Um, And obviously it became in the interest of certain people, to keep the conflict going as long as possible so that they could actually get those cheap diamonds. And those were the diamonds that became the blood diamonds.
1: And you were, your organization was effective in sort of stopping the illicit diamond trade?
3: In many ways, we were. However, it was not something which some of the larger diamond companies looked upon too kindly because it influenced the prices that they were paying for diamonds as well.
1: Interesting. Interesting. And, um, and and any closing thoughts or remarks uh, for for our American listeners?
3: Well, just to say that I'm um, very pleased that I have been approached by an American-based um, company, which is known as the Strategic Services Group, um, to help them and to provide advice to American companies operating in Africa. And I think, to me, as first of all a South African and secondly as an African. It's really nice that I can find myself in a position where hopefully I can give good advice to people in terms of their investments into our continent.
1: Well, I want to thank you for being on the program. Africa is, uh, is not something Americans know a lot about. It's, it's very confusing, and, uh, and I want to thank you for helping to clarify uh, what's going on there.
3: Jeff, it's been a great privilege being on your show. Thank you very much for having me.
1: Yes, thank you. And I want to wish you good luck with your your new job with the Americans.
3: Thank you very much. And once again, it's been a great pleasure talking to you.
1: My pleasure, too. Thank you. Uh, good luck. You're listening
0: to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist.
2: Oh, no. Some radio stations are just it's noise and television. chatter. WIBG 1020 AM is radio with a passion and purpose. From early in the morning to Grossman Afternoons, Chuck Betson Sports Saturdays, and Dan Klein, South Jersey Insider. WIBG 1020, the area's first choice, plugging you into life.
0: And now once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show.
1: Well, I'm Jeff Nyquist. This has been a very fascinating interview with... uh, Lieutenant Colonel Evan Barlow. And the thing that I take away from the interview that uh, surprised me to hear was the rising influence of China in Africa and how China's influence in Africa is edging out Europe and America. Something very significant to think about, something that you don't read in the newspapers, and uh, why we want to do these kind of interviews. So um, I'm Jeff Nyquist. I want to thank you for joining us in the program today with my guest, Lieutenant Colonel Evan Barlow, and I hope you'll be with us next week at this same time.
0: From the Jeff Nyquist studios on California's North Coast and from our flagship broadcast facilities at WIBG 1020, Atlantic City Suburban Philadelphia's number one news talk station, you've been listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. We invite you to join us again next week at the same time. In the meantime, please visit Jeff's website at jrnyquist.com. Again, that's jrnyquist.com. Thank you for listening.